It's October 1986, Perth, Western Australia. Over a five-week period, five women would go missing. Four of them would be murdered, but the fifth would be able to escape, and a shocking story of kidnapping, rape and murder would be uncovered. This is the story of David and Catherine Burney, serial killers. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So, before I get into the gruesome bits, I'd better warn those that get triggered by rape and murder that this episode may trigger you. In saying that, first I'll give you some background of the two main characters in this shocking tale. First cab off the rank is David Burney, born 16th of February 1951, to a scrawny, hunchback, stuttering father, John, and a lazy, alcoholic, pathetic mother, Margaret, at Wattle Grove, about half-hour drive southwest of Perth, Western Australia. He would end up as the eldest of six children in a dysfunctional, unkempt and filthy home. In fact, before his parents were married, the local Baptist minister had concerns about the marrying, describing John Burney as a man of very small stature and of unattractive appearance, and Margaret as a woman known for her filthy mouth, coarse manner and would put out to the local taxi drivers for cab fare. The minister was known to have said, Only tragedy can come from this. The second main character in the story is Catherine Harrison, born 23rd of May 1951, to Harold and Doreen Harrison. When she was only two years old, her mother died giving birth to her brother, who died a couple of days after that. As her father couldn't cope, Catherine was sent to live with her maternal grandparents. Eventually, when she was 10 years old, and after a bitter custody dispute, Catherine's father would gain sole custody of her. David and Catherine would meet when they were about 12 years old, and began a sexual relationship by the age of 14. David was always in trouble with the local police, breaking into houses and shoplifting. Eventually, David was recommended to a horse racing trainer as an apprentice jockey. Trainer Eric Parnham took him on, describing him as a pale, sickly-looking boy who he took on just to give him a job. Soon, it was noticed that he would often physically harm the horses and get busted flashing his wanger at people. After around a year, he was kicked out of his job after he walked into the room of the lady he was boarding with, Starkers, with only pantyhose on his head. He then tried to rape her, but as he was only a little jockey-sized dude, she was able to defend herself. Anyway, most of the next part of the story, I would like to acknowledge Australian true crime author Paul B. Kidd's TV interviews and the books he's authored. David and Catherine would then go on a crime spree. On the 11th of June 1969, they both pleaded guilty to 11 charges of breaking, entering and stealing. They admitted to stealing oxyacetylene equipment 
and using it to try and crack a safe at the Waverley Drive-In Theatre. Catherine got probation and David got nine months inside. On the 9th of July 1969, they were committed for trial on a further eight charges of breaking, entering and stealing, with David getting three extra years added to his previous sentence and Catherine getting a further four years probation. On the 21st of June 1970, David broke out of Carnet Prison and straight away he hooked back up with Catherine and they again went on a criminal rampage. Three weeks later, the cops caught up with them and they faced a further 53 counts of stealing, receiving, breaking and entering, being unlawful on premises, unlawfully driving motor vehicles and unlawfully using vehicles. They were a busy couple. Now according to Paul B. Kidd, they were caught with clothing, wigs, bedding, radios, food, books, a hundred sticks of gelignite, 120 detonators and three fuses. Catherine admitted she had done wrong, okie dokie, and uh, that she would do anything for David. Now get this, David Burney would only get two and a half years prison and Catherine six months. For fuck's sake, what's wrong with these judges? This couple obviously were just trouble and they had gelignite detonators and fuses. Okay, I'll go on. David would go back to prison and at the same time Catherine would end up inside for her first prison term. This forced break from each other gave Catherine a chance to turn her life around. With the help of her parole officer, when Catherine was released, she was able to gain work as a housekeeper for the McLaughlin family, where she would meet her future husband, Donald McLaughlin. Catherine would marry Donald on her 21st birthday and had a reasonably uneventful and happy marriage, culminating in having seven children, although their firstborn, a son, would be killed when he was run over by a car when he was very young. The thing is, Catherine still pined for her first love, David Burney. David would meet his wife, Kerry, in his early 20s, and they would marry only a month after meeting. Soon, Kerry gave birth to a baby girl named Tanya. David and Kerry also had a relatively normal and happy marriage at the start. After six years of marriage, David suffered a head injury at work, and according to his wife, this caused a change in David's personality. He started to have affairs and became critical of everything that Kerry did. Now David Burney had an insatiable appetite for sex. After 10 years, the marriage came to an end when David brought his 16-year-old girlfriend to live in the family home. Eventually, David would break up with his young girlfriend and would be reunited with his childhood sweetheart, Catherine. Catherine was married at the time and they started having an affair for the next two and a half years. As David now had no live-in girlfriend, his little brother Jamie, who had moved in with him, soon became the target of his insatiable sex drive. After several moves by David, which Jamie resisted, one night Jamie awoke to David having sex with him. 
Jamie had previously been in prison for interfering with his six-year-old niece. Jamie had told a reporter that the six-year-old had let him on. You know what they can be like. I guess when one apple doesn't fall far from the tree, the next one doesn't either. He would also say that David was into kinky sex and loved pornos, needed sex five or six times a day, and that David would inject anaesthetic into his dick with a needle before he had a root. Catherine, at this time, was still married and living in a dirty hovel with six kids, an unemployed husband, her father and uncle to look after. One day she called up her hubby and told him she's not coming back and moved in with David. Catherine and David would not marry, but Catherine would change her last name to Bernie via deed poll. So as you can see, David and Catherine Bernie, both from dysfunctional and broken homes, have found that they are a perfect match, with Catherine devoted to her sex-crazed husband, willing to do anything for him, and as you will see, this would extend to abduction, rape and murder. Even though the couple on the outside seemed to live a normal suburban life, they would secretly start planning for a horrific spate of rapes and murders that would shock the nation. Starting with a book on how to plan the perfect murder, David and Catherine would spend a year planning on how to start their new twisted career together. So it's now the 6th of October 1986. David Burney was working in a car wrecking yard and a young 22-year-old girl named Mary Nielsen turned up looking for cheap tyres for a car. Mary had a part-time job at a deli while she studied psychology at uni. David told her that he could do a better price than the wrecking yard as he had just the right tyres she wanted back at his home. Mary felt comfortable with David as her father was a regular customer at the wrecking yard and David was actually known as a model employee. Later that day, Mary turned up at David and Catherine's 3 Morehouse Street Willoughgee home and knocked on the door. Catherine greeted her and motioned for her to come inside. Within seconds of entering the house, David grabbed her, threatened her with a knife while Catherine assisted. They bound and gagged her, then chained her to the bed. David raped her repeatedly, with Catherine asking him what turned him on, with David saying that he wanted to kill her. Mary, gagged, bound and tied up, was powerless to fight back. Once David had finished raping Mary, they put her in their car and drove to the state forest near Bedforddale, where David raped her again, then strangled her with a nylon rope and buried her in a shallow grave. David then drove her car and parked it opposite the police station, thinking that this is the last place the police would look. Two weeks later, on the 20th of October, David and Catherine went out for a drive, hunting for their next victim. Walking along the Stirling Highway near Claremont, 15-year-old Susanna Candy a talented student at Hollywood Senior High School, was trying to hitch a ride after finishing her shift at work. The Burnies pulled over 
and Susanna accepted their offer of a lift. Within a short time, Catherine mentioned to David that she had the munchies, and David replied that he had the munchies as well. This was their code word they used to signal each other that this girl was a suitable candidate for their sick, perverted night they had planned. Catherine jumped into the back seat and at knife point threatened Susanna to do what they told her to do or they would kill her. Once back at Three Morehouse Street, they chained Susanna to the bed and David repeatedly raped her, again with Catherine egging him on and joining them on the bed. Later they made Susanna write letters to her family that she had gone away for a while and not to worry. After three days of torturing and raping Susanna, David tried to strangle her, but she violently resisted. The couple then forced sleeping pills down her throat, and Susanna then became groggy and fell asleep. David then told Catherine that to prove her undying love for him, that she should be the one to do the killing this time. David wrapped the nylon cord around the now sleeping Susanna's neck and Catherine proceeded to tighten it until Susanna stopped breathing. Later when asked why she did it, Catherine said, because I wanted to see how strong I was within my inner self. I didn't feel a thing. It was like I expected. I was prepared to follow him to the end of the earth and do anything to see that his desires were satisfied. She was a female. Females hurt and destroy males. They then take Susanna's body to the same site at the State Forest near Bedforddale and bury her body in a shallow grave. So now the police have reports of two missing girls, but at this early stage, no one's able to link these incidents together. It's as if they have just vanished off the face of the earth. It's now just a week after the murder of Susanna when the Burnies were hungry and on the prowl for their next victim. They spot 31-year-old Nolene Patterson who had run out of petrol on her way home from her job as bar manager at the Nedlands Golf Club. The Burnies chuck a Yui, or U-turn for non-Aussies, and offer her a lift. Now as you can imagine... If you're offered a lift by a male and female couple, you would feel more comfortable in accepting it. I mean, how many couples have you heard of that are going to pose a danger to yourself? Well, maybe Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, Gwendolyn Graham and Catherine May Wood, Fred and Rosemary West, Charlene and Gerald Gallego, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate, Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck, Ian Brady, and Myra Hindley, and so on. But this is Perth, Australia, and these things just don't happen here. Anyway, Nolene accepts the ride, and after Catherine gives David the munchies code word, she jumps into the back seat, and again at knife point threatens the terrified bar manager to shut up or die. They take her back to Morehouse Street, and as per their M.O., they bind, gag, then chain Nolene to the bed, and David repeatedly rapes her. This time things don't go quite as before. 
Nolene was a very beautiful woman, and Catherine was worried that David was beginning to like her. In fact, Nolene realised that her only chance to get out of her predicament alive was to try and befriend David and talk her way out of being killed. In fact, Nolene goes so far as to call a friend to assure her that she is fine and not in any trouble. She then goes on to say that she'd run out of fuel and was staying with friends for a few days and if they could organise picking up her car and taking it back to her home. Over the next few days, David kept putting off murdering Nolene and eventually Catherine had had enough. Fearing that David was becoming too attached, Catherine burst into the bedroom in a jealous rage and saw that Nolene was now unchained, her gag was off and she was in an intimate embrace with David. Catherine stormed out of the house. On her return, Catherine grabbed a kitchen knife, stomped into the bedroom and gave David an ultimatum. Putting the knife to her own throat, Catherine shouted at David to either kill Nolene or she would kill herself. David tried to subdue Catherine, but she's insane with jealousy. Finally, they force sleeping tablets down Nolene's throat and Catherine strangles her. As David saw Nolene as different, instead of burying her at the same location as the other two victims, they buried her away from them and David even left her undies on as some perverse sign of respect for her. This would not be the end of the Bernie's brutal and sadistic crimes. On November the 5th, the day after disposing of Nolene's body in the forest, the Bernies spot a girl waiting at a bus stop. 21-year-old Denise Brown was a happy-go-lucky girl that trusted everyone. She happily accepted the offer of a lift rather than wait for the bus. Soon after she entered the car, Catherine, as before, jumped into the back seat and thrust a knife to Denise's neck. They took her back to Morehouse Street and again they gagged and bound Denise, then chained her to the bed. This time, after repeatedly raping her, Catherine decided that she wanted her gone immediately. They bundled Denise back into the car while it was still daylight and drove her to the Wanneroo Pine Plantation. David again raped Denise in the car while he and Catherine waited for nightfall. Once dark, they dragged Denise to the bushes. David then raped Denise again and while in the act, he stuck a knife into her neck. Denise didn't die but lied there gurgling blood. So Catherine found a larger knife which David used to stab her in the chest. Denise now became motionless. They quickly dug a grave and put Denise into it. As David shoveled dirt into the grave, Denise suddenly sat up. This freaked out David and Catherine. David ran to the car and grabbed an axe and hit Denise over the head. Denise fell back down into the grave but soon after, again she sat up. This time David hit her several times with the sharp end, opening up her skull to make sure she was dead. So now there are four girls that are missing or assumed missing, and police still can't connect any of the reports. 
The letters and phone calls relatives and friends are getting poses a problem for police in dealing with what they start to suspect as foul play. I mean, so far, it had only been a month since the first abduction. So things would soon go wrong for this sadistic couple, as Catherine wasn't sure she could do this anymore after the botched killing of Denise, which had left her feeling sick. On November the 9th, the couple would pick up a 17-year-old girl named Kate Moir, hitchhiking on the Stirling Highway on her way to a night out. As before, they took her at knife point to their Morehouse Street residence, where she was bound, gagged and chained to the bed, while David sadistically raped her again and again. Kate was forced to call her mother to assure her that she was fine and was staying at a friend's house as she had drunk too much. Kate hoped her mother would call her friend as Kate was not a drinker and she hoped this would arouse suspicion in her mother enough that her mother would call her friend's house to confirm. But her mother didn't call. Kate would then be handcuffed to David as he slept. The next morning, David went off to work as he would always do during the previous month, creating an air of normality. In fact, his workmates reported that they didn't notice any change in David at all during this period. While at work, Catherine, who was beginning to tire of this sexual murderous rampage, is befriended by Kate and starts to let her guard down. During the day, Kate decided if she was to die, then she would try to leave clues around in case police ever came to the house at some later date, in the hope it would incriminate her abductors. She was able to take her driver's licence, bank cards and other personal effects and place them around the house. Later that day, there's a knock at the door. Catherine was selling pot from the house, and a customer had turned up to score. As Catherine went to answer the door, she forgot to chain Kate up. Kate knew that this was her best chance to make a break for it, and was able to break the lock of a window, and she made her escape, running down the street in just a rundies and bra. She ran to several houses and frantically knocked on the doors. She had no luck, as either the house would be unoccupied or the people would slam the door in her face after seeing a dishevelled, half-naked girl at their door. In a panic, Kate ran up an alleyway and came across a small block of local shops. Here she ran in and the police were called. At the police station... Kate told police about the ordeal she had undergone during her abduction. Kate was able to describe her abductors to police and was sure she was able to take them to their house. Although still traumatised by the vicious sadistic rape she had endured, she told police that she had left personal items and notes around the house and even told them that the locks used to secure the chains they held her with were numbered. She told them that her abductors had watched Rocky on VHS tape the night before. Police weren't sure if Kate's story was true and took her in the car towards where she thought the house was. As they approached the house, Kate became hysterical and police were now sure that her story was fair dinkum. 
They knocked on the door and no one was home, but the door was unlocked. They entered the house and saw the bed complete with chains and numbered locks. They also found the other personal effects Kate had hidden in the places she said they would be. Rocky was in the video player. Police then staked out the house waiting for the occupants to arrive back home. Kate had been able to describe what her abductors looked like and when they saw a slovenly woman walking up the street, they readied themselves. As Catherine walked up to the door of number 3 Morehouse Street, Willoughby, they pounced and took her downtown. They then arrested David Burney and both of them were detained for questioning. At first they both denied everything about the abduction of Kate with Catherine repeatedly telling the detective that she didn't do nothing. After hours of interrogation, Catherine denied ever meeting Kate, but David told police Kate had come to their house for consensual sex. Police at this time now had suspicions that this couple may have been involved in the other girls that had gone missing over the past month. As the night went on, Detective Sergeant Vince Kadich just happened to say to David, It's getting dark. Let's get the shovel and dig him up. To his astonishment, David replied that there was four of them. David then went with detectives to show them where he and Catherine had buried the bodies. David and Catherine will be charged with four counts of murder and one count of each of abduction and rape. During their trial, David would plead guilty, saying that it's the least I could do for the families. They would both be sentenced to four terms of life imprisonment and a non-parole period of 20 years. On October 7th, 2005, David Burney hung himself in his cell. He was 55 years old. In 2007, Catherine was able to apply for parole but it was rejected. On the 14th of March 2009, Western Australian Attorney General Christian Porter determined Catherine would stay in jail for life after lobbying by the victim's families. He said she would never be released as long as he was in office. In 2016, Catherine's fourth bid for parole was rejected and Kate Moir, the girl whose bravery brought the Burnies to justice, lobbied the government to change laws that automatically put convicts up for parole every three years. You see, Catherine has never actually applied for parole in person. In 2017, Peter, Catherine's son, wished they would execute her as his life had been ruined by what she'd done. So, true crime islanders, over a short five-week period, this sadistic couple were able to go on a rampage through the suburbs of Perth, raping and killing with no end in sight, until one brave girl was able to keep her head and managed to escape. Who knows how many others she was able to save from a gruesome, horrific rape and murder. Remember how I told you about the Baptist minister that warned nothing good would come from the marriage of David Burney's mother and father? 
I bet there was no way he could ever imagine what devil spawn they would produce. Because the killing of the women was over a relatively short five-week period, meant that it didn't even sound alarm bells with the police or media until it was all over. I mean, these things just don't happen in Perth. There are some criminal profilers and psychologists that may want to overanalyse David and Catherine Burney on how they became what they became. Here's my analysis. They were scum raised by scum, just a couple of fucktards that got off torturing and murdering young women for their own perverse sexual pleasure. So that's about it for this episode. I'd like to shout out to the True Crime Island Patreon and PayPal supporters. With silver jack chairs, there's Senga Robertson and Helen Popley. The special reserve deck chairs, there's Rebecca Davis, Fiona Crisp, Jerry Hannafin, and Kathy Faltermeyer. Other supporters are Jason Abercrombie, Alison Voigt, Valerie, Brooke Vandenford, Diane Jordan, Laney from the True Crime Fan Club, and Christy Lee from Canadian True Crime, which are both great true crime podcasts, so check them out. There's also Kimberly Schlink, Jackie Rowan, and Joe Varney. Tony Q has made a generous PayPal donation as well. I thank you all for the support and assure you that every cent is being put back into the development of the island. Don't forget, you can also show your support by going to the merch shop where there are True Crime Island logo wear and coffee mugs. If you have a suggestion for a design, please let me know and I can upload it for you. You can also support the island by rating and reviewing on iTunes and Stitcher and I'm pretty sure plenty of other places where you download podcasts from. Please spread the word as well and get your friends and family onto the island. There are the usual Facebook, Twitter and Instagram sites. Links to these are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. On Facebook, search for True Crime Island and for Twitter and Instagram, you can find me on at True Crime Island. Let me shout out to all my podcast family. And this week, there's a g'day mate for Michael and Gibby from True Crime All The Time and True Crime All The Time Unsolved. A high five for Barney and Tara from Bloody Murder. Hi to Ed from Unfound Podcast. There's UK True Crime, Inside the Mind, Once Upon a Crime, California Dreaming, Ari from Murder Under the Midnight Sun and my latest recommendation Twisted Philly with Diana who does a wonderful podcast in fact after listening to a few episodes I really want to go there but if you do go there you've got to hook up to Diana as she'd be the perfect tourist guide anyway if you go to Jeremy's podcast we listen to Facebook page You'll find all the podcast gang, including hosts and listeners. And there's another one, Ricky's True Crime Podcast Facebook page as well. As you may have noticed, I've been releasing a special edition in between weeks. This is now going to be a regular feature and it may include current events such as the Grenfell Tower disaster or even just updates to cases I've covered. So stay tuned. 
Also, I want to mention promo swaps. If you'd like to do a promo swap, email me your promo so I can queue it up. That's cambo at truecrimeisland.com. This week is a promo for The Minds of Madness, which has an amazing podcast and the latest two-part episode you have to listen to. And here it is. What could an American dad, a university professor, and a passenger on a bus possibly have in common? You can find out by listening to the Minds of Madness podcast, where we uncover the series of events and state of mind leading ordinary people to do unthinkable things. The Minds of Madness is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. So, True Crime Islanders, that's the way it is. I'm Cambo, reminding you to delete your browser history. This has been True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. <laughs>